as we continue to worship by reading in God's word, go ahead and be seated. Uh, my name is Pat Husky, and it's my privilege to serve the women here at FBC. Today, we're going to be reading in Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our study in Luke. So read with me, please. Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel, your head, excuse me. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I shall surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pat. We'll be in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38, as you're making your way in your copy of Scripture to uh, that passage. Why don't we pray and ask God for His help. Lord, we thank You for Your kindness to us that we have the joy this morning of opening Your Word. We're Praying, God, that your Holy Spirit will do a work in our hearts, show us where we need to repent, show us what we need to believe, show us, Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, we're going to go through verse 38. It seems appropriate this morning because later on this afternoon there is a football game being played, it's often referred to as the Super Bowl. I wasn't sure if you're familiar with this particular sporting event. With that in mind, if you watch Sunday night football, the players are often introduced in Sunday night football in video form. I don't know if you're familiar with this. The beginning of the game, they'll introduce the offense and the defense of each of the teams, and a little video of the football player will show up at the bottom of your screen, and the player will say, I'm John Smith, Oregon State University, or something like this. They'll say who they are, and they will, uh, <laughs> they will uh, say what uh, team they play for. And occasionally you have a player be kind of funny, and he'll say the name of his elementary school. I'm John Smith and Wilson Elementary School, and something like that. But one of the players, and it's a player you're familiar with, he's a, a quarterback for the Green Bay Packers this year. He's the most valuable player in the league, allegedly. Apparently, I should say. And uh, he will often say, Aaron Rodgers, Butte College. Now, he went to Cal. That's where he got made a name for himself and was eventually drafted. But his first year out of high school, he played for a junior college, Butte College. Aaron Rodgers grew up in Chico, California. Coming out of high school, he was only recruited by, uh, reports say, two other teams, Lewis and Clark College and their amazing football team. Maybe he was being recruited for the debate team. I don't know. One other college recruited him. The Southern Oregon Raiders. He passed on him, obviously. He didn't play for the Southern Oregon Raiders. 
And then Butte College came calling, and he decided to go play for Butte College. So when he's on Monday night, Sunday night football, I should say, and many millions of people are watching the game, and Aaron Rodgers, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the position, says, I went to Butte College, the everyman in us, the small town person in us goes, oh man, that, that is so cool. Yeah, especially those of us on the West Coast, you know, Northern California, I mean, pretty close to the state of Jefferson, I guess, we'll take that, right? So, you know, here's, he's, he's not this big time. All of a sudden, he's relating with the small town guy in Northern California. We like that idea. Somebody making a connection with us who is coming from the big time. And when we look at John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, and Jesus' baptism, we need to recognize he's identifying with particular people. The way Aaron Rodgers identifies with small town folks when he says he went to Butte College. Jesus in his baptism is intentionally seeking to identify with a certain set of people. Jesus' baptism, we might even say it right up front here, is a participation with repenting sinners. What he's demonstrating through his baptism is that he is on a mission to identify and connect with those who need Forgiveness. So the title of our message today is a question. The question is this, who is Jesus for? Who is Jesus for? Not, on one hand, I'm saying who is Jesus on behalf of, but also who is Jesus cheering for? Who is Jesus cheering for? And his, his baptism is going to show us one group of people, and then the genealogy we're going to look at in a minute is going to show us another group of people. So we'll say it up front here. His baptism says, who is Jesus for? Jesus is for sinners. Jesus is for sinners. Look what it says. I'm going to read it. Luke chapter 3, verses 21, 22. It's very brief. Now, when all the people were baptized, this is by John the Baptist. And when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit depended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Remember, John the Baptist, his mission was one to make way the way of the Messiah, to make straight the way of the Messiah, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so John grew, grew up and ended up out in the wilderness by the Jordan River proclaiming baptism and repentance of sin. And so the way he made way for the Messiah was to tell people they were sinners and they needed a Savior. When somebody was baptized by John, they were agreeing with him about what he said about them. And so he was preparing the way for the Messiah. In fact, we know this is what it's about because Luke wrote another book in the Bible. It's called the book of Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts were completed really at the same time. And we discover in the book of Acts exactly what the people of Jesus' day thought about John's baptism. So Acts chapter 10, Peter, it gives a sermon. Now, one thing you should notice about this sermon, it only takes a couple of minutes to read, maybe a minute to read, and I want you to know I learned nothing from that. I'm going to go ahead and yammer on as long as I feel is appropriate. But second, one thing we should recognize here is Peter in this moment is giving a message to a group of people in the house of Cornelius the centurion. Peter's just discovered through a vision from God that the gospel is not merely for the Jews, but it is for all people, including the Gentiles. 
And now he is giving a sermon to people gathered in the house of Cornelius the centurion. Listen to the message beginning in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him... All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter here reminds us what we just read in Luke, that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to do good, to do his mission, and he makes it clear what his mission was, to die by being hung on a cross and to be raised from the dead. Peter makes a very clear point. After Jesus was raised by the, from the dead, Peter, including many other witnesses, saw Jesus raised from the dead, but he makes a very important point in his message to these Gentiles. He says he ate and drank with the risen Messiah. Why is that important? Because most of the people in Rome at that time, any Gentiles in this region, would all of them would have believed in ghosts. That would, if you would have denied the existence of ghosts, you would have been laughed out of the room. But everybody knows ghosts don't eat. Everybody know that, knows that. And so Peter makes it clear to these Gentiles, this wasn't a ghost of Jesus. This was Jesus' dead body raised from the dead, eating and drinking with us. This wasn't a ghost. This was the same guy who was dead and is now even alive. And he makes this point as well. He says, none of this happened in secret. He even says at the beginning of this message, you yourselves know what happened. He says to Cornelius, you, you heard the news. This is not new information from, to you that Jesus was going around healing people. And, do, and Cornelius, you notice, didn't argue. He said, I've never heard of this. He didn't say, of course he's heard of this. This wasn't done in a corner. This wasn't done in secret. So Peter in this message says, look, Jesus came and was baptized by John the Baptist, and it was at that moment that God anointed him with the power to accomplish his ministry, which was to, to serve sinners by going to the cross, and to serve sinners by being raised from the dead. And it started at the baptism. Let's look again at that baptism. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 21, in case you've lost track of where we are. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, 
That's hyperbole. Not all the people were baptized. How do we know that? Because the people not being baptized, I think John referred to them in very polite terms. I think it was something like, you brood of vipers, you sons of the devil, something like this. Not everybody was being baptized. When all of the people who were being baptized were with John, Jesus was baptized with them. When the being baptized people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized. And the question then, we're going to answer this again in the book of Acts, why would Jesus be baptized with the being baptized people? Why would he get in the water with them? Look at Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. I'm going to read the whole section. It's several verses. And if, if that's hard for you, you don't deal with it. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just going to have to deal with it. Here we go. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's northern Africa. Yes, sir. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and talk, taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. His education stopped at the baptism of John. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They filled in the blanks for him. Verse 27, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus, or that Jesus is the Messiah. First thing we discover about John's baptism with Apollos. There's more to the plan than John's baptism. There's more coming. John was making the way for the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah. And Apollos, his education stopped at John's baptism, so he knew about repentance. But he wasn't going on. Where does that repentance lead? Where does that repentance uh, go? And we discover where it goes in the next chapter of Acts. Acts 19, 1 through 4. And it happened while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. We've got a theme going on here. Here's what Paul said. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. When you got baptized by John, this is what baptism would mean. When you were dunked in the water, what you're saying is, I am identifying with this reality. And the reality that John was proclaiming was this. If you're baptized by me, you agree with me, you are a sinner. And you need to repent of your sin. So everybody in the Jordan River being baptized by John was saying publicly, 
I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I need to repent. That's what everybody was doing. If you didn't need to repent, if you didn't have any sin in your life, you didn't get baptized by John. You stood on the shore, and he called you sons of the devil. But if you said to yourself, I'm a sinner, what he's saying about people in general is true of me specifically, you would get in the water and publicly proclaim to all who would see, I'm a sinner, and I want to repent of my sin. Does John, though, offer a solution? No. He is making way for the Messiah. John's baptism is intended to communicate you have a problem. And your problem is your sin, and it's your sin that needs to be addressed. But his baptism was a baptism of admittance. I agree I'm a sinner. Jesus shows up to the Jordan River, and he tells John, I need to be baptized by you. What is Jesus repenting of? Nothing. He's never sinned, never will sin. Why is he being baptized by John? He is not identifying as a sinner. He's identifying with the people standing in the water with him. He's saying, these are my people. When he's being baptized by John, he is saying, I am with the people baptized such. This is my crew. These are my people. The people standing on the shore who don't need to repent, those are my people. I am with the sinners. Who is Jesus for? When he is dunked into the water with John's baptism, he looks at the people who are waist deep in that nasty water who's been in the Jordan River. I'd say it smells like catfish, but that's being kind. It's gross. And he's being baptized in this river. There, you remember Naaman? Oh, now you got to Google it. This is off topic. But he was going to be healed of, of, of leprosy, and the prophet told him to dip in the Jordan River. He says, we've got better rivers in Assyria. And guess what? He's right. He's right. So Jesus is in this river with these sinners being baptized by this forerunner saying, I am for the sinners. I, Jesus is saying through his baptism, I'm going to take the baptism of repentance and nail it to a cross and fix it. I'm going to be these people who are repenting, go with me to the cross by faith, and I'm going to deal with the problem they're admitting now. John Bapti John's, Baptist did, excuse me, John's baptism brings, calls for repentance, and Jesus says, I will go to the cross and fix the problem this repentance agrees with. Look at verse 22 of Luke chapter 3, I should say, not Acts 19. The Holy Spirit descended on him bodily form like a dove. That's strange. Some of you have kids who go off to school. So if you're a parent and you send your kids off to school, whether it be elementary school or middle school or high school or, or Butte College, in the back of your mind, you may even say it out loud, you, you are concerned about the friends your kids are going to make. You might even give them some tips on how to avoid the wrong crowd. And then once your parents, uh, you, you find out who your kids are hanging around with, somehow, good, they found some good friends. And others of us are like, oh, it's over. They're dead to me. They're off the rails. I'll never see them again. They're with the wrong crowd. So here's Jesus with the wrong crowd. I mean, if you're the Messiah, if you're perfect, if you've never sinned, this is not the crew you should be hanging with is the people in this river. Could you imagine the people, what the people are like who are being baptized by John? 
and Jesus is standing in the river, and you wonder, what's dad going to say about this? Jesus is with the wrong crowd. And as you would expect, the heavens open up. Here he comes. Here he comes. I've got to let you know what I think about you hanging around with these people. And the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. doesn't say it is a dove. It says like a dove. Descends upon him. And listen to what the Father says to the Son, empowering with the Spirit, this Jesus hanging out with the wrong crowd. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the crowd I wanted you with. These are the people I wanted you to stand waist deep in a stinky river with. Sinners. We're all on the same page on this. All right, the plan is now in motion. Jesus is for sinners. In fact, Jesus hanging out with these sinners is affirmed and ordained and empowered by the Spirit and the Father here. But these words here, you are my beloved son. Of course, we always love our children. Of course, there's always this unconditional sense. But we see here between the father and the son something that every parent recognizes, which is sometimes you see something happen and you're moved. You're moved. You're like, oh, that is so cool. They're like that. And that's what you see here. The father seeing the son in the river with sinners. And he goes, yes, this is exactly what we're about. This is what we're into. I knew it. You are my beloved son in whom I am wealthy. This is a sense of affection from the father to the son that is derived from redemptive obedience. The father moved in affection towards the son because of his redemptive obedience. Of course, Jesus would do nothing else. Romans 3.23, it's a verse we're all familiar with, but I didn't put it on the screen. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. However, as we see at the Jordan River for John, and as we see in our own lives, not everyone sees themselves in that light. Jesus is for those who see it. That's it. Not everyone sees themselves as a sinner. Jesus is for those who are confronted and cannot remove from their face the shame and darkness and regret of their life. He is for those who are sinners, who wish it would have been different, who have regret and shame and guilt, and I wish, but it's not, I'm broken, I need help, and Jesus says, I'm in the water with you. I'm for repenters. Not everybody sees that. And if you don't see it, you don't need him, and if you don't need him, you won't want him. And you say, well, well, I want Jesus. Here's what happened. Now, I don't want to be rude, but I'm going to. Um, if you don't need Jesus who saves sinners, what you do is make a Jesus that does whatever you want. You know, I don't really need forgiveness of sin, but I need a sense of significance in my life. I don't need forgiveness of sin, but there is a sense that formal religion touches something that I, it itches a scratch I have, scratches an itch I have. I'm not really a sinner, but I know that God blesses, and I, I, I think Jesus, if I sort of am connected to him, he'll give me a sense of significance, he'll provide what's needed, he'll, he'll smooth over the speed bumps of life, maybe provide for some of the joys that this world has to offer. So this is what we do. 
I need a Jesus that does something other than forgive sin, and so therefore I create a Jesus. I call him Jesus. I pretend like the Bible is talking about this Jesus, but it's a, it's a figment of my imagination. Jesus doesn't stand in the Jordan River to give you your life dreams. He stands in the Jordan River with sinners. And if we don't need forgiveness, we don't need Jesus. And if you don't need Jesus, trust me, you won't want him. You say, well, how can you say that? Because they killed him. And that's what people do when they discover Jesus is focused on repairing my sin problem, not my ha- I had a bad week problem. This is good news for those of us who are sinners. Jesus is for us. If you see yourself in that light, and if you're weighed down by the burden of shame and guilt and regret, Jesus stands in the water with you. He says, you're my people. I'm with you. Who is Jesus for? Jesus is for sinners. But let's keep going. There's this long genealogy. There's another thing here. Who is Jesus for? There's some details here we want to pick out. Now, lucky for you, we're not going to go through every name and study them in depth. There wouldn't be time, although that would be terribly interesting. And I can see already, really where? I would find it terribly interesting. Maybe you wouldn't. Who is Jesus for? We discover something here in this genealogy. Let me show you. Let's start in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, a parable that Jesus shares. And as I have been doing this morning, I'm going to read it. I was thinking about just telling you the parable, and I thought, who am I to think I could tell you this parable better than Jesus did? I'm going to read you this parable, Matthew chapter 20, 16 verses. It's a story, so it's fun to read stories. Here we go. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, well, you go into the vineyard too, and and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going in again at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into my vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. That's insane. Sorry, that's not in there. That's me. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, of course, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only an hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Any cheese with that wine? I'm sorry. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? They did. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. In this parable of the hired workers... Each worker sees themselves different 
than the others. But the owner, in his generosity, is for them all in the same way. Now, they don't like it. They want to be treated special, those who came first. But in his generosity, the owner says, no, I'm going to treat you all the same regardless of when you entered the field. And what Jesus is illustrating here is the people of Israel saying, we have a greater share in the Messiah than the Gentiles who have come later. And Jesus says, I don't think so. Is it a problem that Gentiles show up now and they get salvation? Is that a problem with you that I'm generous? As it turns out, it is. Jesus' lineage that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 3 shows us that Jesus is not just for sinners. He is for all sinners. Jesus is not just for sinners. Jesus is for all sinners. Because think about it. Where is Jesus being baptized by John? The Jordan River. Who is, who is Jesus from in terms of his sort of genetics, if I can say that way? He is a son of Judah. He is in the tribe of Judah. What tribe is John from? He is a Levite. Where did Jesus grow up? In Galilee. If you're reading this baptism of Jesus being baptized, this is one Jew being baptized by another Jew in a Jewish river. This sounds like a Jewish gospel. And then Luke gives us the genealogy in the second part of Luke chapter 3, and we say Jesus is not just for Jewish sinners. Jesus is for all sinners. Who is Jesus for? Jesus is for sinners. We look at his genealogy. We'll look at it here in a minute. And we discover Jesus isn't just for Jewish sinners. Jesus is for all sinners. His genealogy confirms he is the Messiah. But when we take a comprehensive look at where he is from, he is the Messiah for all people. Not merely the Jewish uh, people. Look with me at Genesis 3, 14 to 15. Uh, Pat was kind enough to read it. We're going to just read the part to the brood of vipers, the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Do you guys remember the story from the Garden of Eden? Is that a, a story you're not familiar with? Adam and Eve, created by God in his image. God tells them they can have whatever they want to eat except for this one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes in, deceives them, and they eat of it, destroying all mankind, murdering everybody who ever lived. The serpent then receives this curse. Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we have here is the setting of the stage of the Old Testament narrative. We can summarize maybe in some ways the narrative of the Old Testament is the conflict between the serpent and the woman's seed. The narrative of the Old Testament is this, a Messiah is coming, and it's the serpent's effort to interrupt that Messiah. How'd he do? Total failure. So this lineage is the story, this, this narrative of God saying, I will redeem people from people. The Messiah will be a man born from men to bring redemption and will crush the head of the serpent. And so let's go and look at this genealogy. Do you want to read it? Go ahead, but we're not going to. You can read it after. Just a couple of things I want you to point out about this genealogy. Number one, it goes from 
uh, Joseph, his adopted father, back to Adam. Second thing I want to point out, there's another genealogy, and it is in Matthew, and this one is different than the one in Matthew. First of all, it doesn't go back as far. Secondly, it has different people in it. So I want to explain a couple of things about genealogies in the Bible, and then something about this one in particular. First of all, genealogies in the Bible don't include everybody. Say, what? Here we go. Let me give you an example. My father's name was Melvin. His father's name was Ira. That's a name people had. You can have a genealogy that would say, Greg, son of Melvin, son of Ira. That's accurate. Or you could say, Greg, son of Ira. Is that inaccurate? The fact that it leaves out the middle person does not make it inaccurate. This happens all the time. It means this person over here is from where I draw my line. And this happens in the scripture all the time, and it happens in genealogies in ancient literature all the time. You can say, my father is, and you can go back as many generations as you want. The other thing that's different is some of these names are different. Look at verse 27. The son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel. Why don't people name their kids after Zerubbabel anymore? The son of Shealtiel. So up until verse 27 in Luke, all of the people listed before that, we really have no information on. These are people we don't know. They don't occur in the Old Testament. The first time somebody in this list occurs in the Old Testament is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel and Shealtiel lived in the time just after the exile of Judah. So we have people that we don't know who they are. And they don't match the people who are in uh, the book of Matthew. You say, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that Joseph would have different descendants here than he had in, in Matthew? Well, let me explain to you. I know you're captivated with genealogical studies here this morning. Here we go. Buckle in. Back in the day, there was what was called leveret of parenthood. So what would happen is I would have a child and I would die, and my child would be raised by my brother or I would die before having a child, and uh, I w children be would be had on my behalf to preserve my inheritance in Israel. This happened a lot in the Old, Old Testament, and it happened a lot in ancient times. Why? Because people died young. I mean, the average age was relatively low, and the infant mortality rate was relatively high, so it wasn't uncommon at all for somebody to have somebody they were born of, but they would be reckoned to another one. And so somebody could have two chains, two lines in their genealogy. We have a great example of this in our Old Testament. You want to see it? Yes, it's in the book of Ruth. Don't act like you don't want to see it. Book of Ruth. This is a great time since we're talking about the book of Ruth. Great time to remember, fellas, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. If you didn't know tomorrow's Valentine's Day, good luck with that. Some of the guys are saying, no, she told me not to do anything. Really? Oh, you rookie. Good luck with that. All right. Does everybody know the story of Ruth? Oh, we're swooning. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Who was Ruth? She was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Ruth was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi had a husband. His name was Elimelech. They had two sons. Ruth was married to one of them. Elimelech is eliminated. He's dead. Their two sons, dead. All that's left are Naomi and Ruth, 
the daughter-in-law. Ruth marries Boaz in Israel from the tribe of Judah. And to do so, he buys land to confirm and keep Elimelech's line alive. The first child Ruth and Boaz have will be credited to who? Elimelech. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Then the women said to who? Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in all Israel. Verse 17 of this same section. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So who is the father of this child, Obed? Elimelech, because his line must be preserved. It's critically important that his line must be preserved. But now what's grateful, at the end of Ruth, we're given a genealogy of King David, because that's the whole point of Ruth. It's not for romance. It's for King David uh, to be affirmed as king. These are the generations that led up to Obed, who was, of course, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, not Elimelech. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. So right here we see what's happening. Who's the father of Obed? Elimelech. Who else is the father of Obed? Boaz. He's got two lines. And that's what we see in the book of Luke. It's not surprising that somebody like Joseph would have two lines because this was happening so often. So the, the genealogy of Luke is not in conflict with the genealogy of Matthew. It's just uh, Luke decides to highlight other fathers because of the leveret uh, births that would, would happen. So let's look at a couple of people in this genealogical line so we can understand what Luke's point is. Number one. Jesus is the Messiah. If you've got your copy of Scripture open, look in verse 31 and 32. Nathan was the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. First thing we must pay attention to, Jesus is the son of David. That means Jesus is the Messiah. Because the Messiah was going to come in the line of David. So one thing we must understand, Jesus is in fact the Messiah. But the genealogy keeps going. He doesn't stop there. Look in uh, verse 34. He was the son of Judah. Who was Judah? He was the namesake of the tribe of Judah. And Judah, of course, was the son of Jacob. Who was Jacob? His name was changed to Israel, the father of Israel. The father of Jacob is Isaac. The father of Isaac is Abraham. So God comes to Abraham, makes him a promise that the entire world will be blessed through him, and that he will have a son even as an old man. Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. And God says to Abraham, I will confirm my covenant with your son, Isaac. And then God tells Abraham in Genesis 21 to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham obeys because he understands that Isaac will receive the covenant promises, and Abraham believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. So he went ahead with it, and God spared Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Esau, the red, and Jacob. Jacob was the one through whom God's people are reckoned. His name was changed to Israel. 
And so it's not surprising for the Jews reading this genealogy that we're going to mention Abraham, called out from the, called out from the world for, to bless the world, and Isaac, the son of the covenant, and then, of course, oh, Jacob, Jacob, Israel, that's our man, and then there are 12 tribes, of, but, but this genealogy doesn't stop there. Where does it go? Who's before Abraham? Terah and Nahor. Wait a minute. Now we're getting in dicey ground. Abraham was called out of those people. He was an idolater called to bring redemption. Why are we talking about Terah and, and Nahor? It gets worse. Look down in verse 36. The son of Shem, the son of Noah. We love Noah. He built a boat. But what about Lamech and Methuselah? Methuselah was good at one thing, not dying. But where were Lamech and Methuselah not? On an ark. So we know what was true of the rest of the world was true for Noah's father and his grandfather. God looked at the world and regretted he had made the world because every inclination of every heart was evil other than Noah. And these people also are in the line of this Messiah. And then finally we get to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. What's Adam got going for him? He murdered everybody. He messed the whole thing up. The whole thing is his fault. Now, we own it because he's dad. And if you and I would have been there, I would have done it sooner. We might not have needed the serpent. Now, this tree, Greg, don't eat from this one. What's that? Oh, don't eat the... That's, that's, that's how I probably would have done it. So this genealogy says, no, no, no. oh, you think he's just for Jewish sinners. No, no, no. He's for Methuselah sinners. He's for Lamech sinners. He's for Adam, destroyer of the human race sinners. Who is Jesus for? Jesus, the Messiah, is for all sinners. Because this genealogy doesn't stop with Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It keeps going. Jesus the Son of God is for all sinners. Now, we're not going to get to it this week. You're welcome. The son of Adam. Adam failed the temptation. What happens in chapter 4? Look in your Bible. Do you think that's an accident? That's where Luke put, Luke put the, the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, the son of Adam, who the one thing he's not good at is not sinning. He's terrible at overcoming temptation. Jesus then steps in and does what nobody in, the, in human history has ever been able to do, says no to all temptation. Who is Jesus for? He is for sinners. Look with me once, one more time. We're going to close with this. Verse 23. Jesus, when he was, began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So at about 30 years, he is affirmed by the Father, anointed with power by the Spirit, in a long line of brokenness where all of human history has failed to be faithful to God's covenant promises, Jesus steps in and is 100% faithful to God and his covenant promises. Why would he do that? Because he wants to help the sinners. Standing waist deep in the Jordan River with people full of shame and guilt, he said, don't worry, I got it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to do what you could have never done. I'm going to take care of your sin 
on the cross and through an open tomb. Who is Jesus for? He is for sinners. He is for all sinners, even, even us. A couple of things. We deeply value what we need. You will not value Jesus if you don't need him. And if you don't see your sin as the biggest problem in your life, you will not need Jesus. You won't value him. And worse yet, you'll probably create a fake one. One that you like, that meets a need you're hoping gets addressed. The reason we miss Jesus is because we don't want to agree with him. I'm a sinner. I need to get in the water with John the Baptist. I need to admit and agree the biggest problem I'm facing in my life and my eternity is my shameful sin. One other thing about Jesus. Uh, Jesus, I don't know if I should say this, so I will. Jesus wasn't a religious figure. A religious figure doesn't have a, a genealogy like this. Jesus has come as a savior for all people. We can say it this way. This genealogy says Jesus is, he's from here. He, he's one of us. Now, he is not the, the same as us. He never sinned. Thank, thank the Lord, right? But he identified in that baptism, baptism with sinners. If you see him as merely a figure to be looked up to, you're going to miss the redemption he has for people he's standing in the river with. Okay, last thing we see in this, and this is just for the Christians in the room. We need to see something in Jesus I think we often miss. There's a, in John chapter 17, Jesus uh, summarizes it this way. He says, we're not of the world. We're to be in the world, but we're not of the world, right? You're familiar with that phrase. There's a, there's a really big difference between recognizing I'm not of this world and thinking I'm better than the world. There's a big difference between the two, and I think we, we often confuse these. We think, since I'm not of the world, I am better than the world, and the world will be a lot better place when it finally figures out how right I am. The sooner the world wraps itself around my notions of value and what's up and what's down and what's important, the better things will be. Jesus' ministry wasn't really that way. He jumped in the water with the world and said, I'm with you if you need my help. I think as Christians, we need to get that mindset a little better than we do. And stop trying to communicate, either non-verbally or even verbally, that we're better than the people around us. Instead, communicate, we're with you. And if you want help with your sin, shame, and guilt, I know a guy. I should say it this way. When we think the world isn't living up to our expectations, we aren't living like Jesus. Because Jesus came in and said, I'm going to offer grace to those who will take it. Who is Jesus for? He's for sinners. He is for all sinners. Will you join me as we pray? God, I thank you for your kindness to us. I pray in this moment, God, you might move our hearts to recognize the ministry you came to do. I think especially for those of us, Lord, that have known you a long time, our hearts and minds get filled with notions of what we need you to do for us when there is one thing you came to do for us, and that was to identify with our sin and take it to the cross. 
And God, we pray in this moment you would once again remind us of the goodness of your grace to send Jesus to save sinners like us. I pray for those who are here this morning, God, who don't know you, that in this moment, their hearts would be softened to recognize what they need. Rather than taking offense at what the Bible says is true about us, instead, Lord, we would allow the truth of the gospel to communicate to our hearts. We are sinners who need forgiveness from God. I pray for those who are here this morning, God, that even in this moment, they would receive you by faith. All who believe in the name of the Lord will be saved. God, I pray for those of us who are believers that you would help soften our hearts, our notions of what ought to be, and our, our religious notions have over time sometimes clouded the reality of your mission. Sometimes when we walk with you long enough, we forget how much we need your forgiveness. God, we pray that you might soften our hearts in humility again. We thank you for Jesus who saves sinners like us, and we can't wait till you come back. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up and we'll close with a song together? Mm-hmm.